Hello and welcome to a special edition of the Rockcast, a podcast from Rockhurst University. Each year, our student senate puts on what is referred to as the last lecture. It is meant to recognize a member of the faculty, staff, or administration in order for them to share a bit of their legacy with us. This year's speaker is none other than University President Father Tom Curran. Father Curran announced earlier this fall semester that he will be departing the university at the close of the academic year, so while he will be missed, we are very fortunate that he shared his time to deliver this last lecture. That will be followed by a question and answer session that you can hear as well. So with that said, we now join Emma Barbin from Student Senate as she introduces the guest speaker. The Rockhurst University Student Senate has adopted this tradition of the last lecture. It is an opportunity to hear the stories and wisdom that faculty, staff, and university leaders have to share. The purpose of the last lecture is to hear some words about the journey of one's life and career, lessons one has learned, and advice one may have to pass on. This is an opportunity to hear one's legacy in the form of a last lecture. It is our honor to introduce the man who needs no introduction, but the 14th president of Rockhurst University, Father Curran. Is 
I don't think the person who's very, very significant to all of us, St. Ignatius Loyola, the founder of the Society of Jesus. And Ignatius, while he's known for founding this group called the Least Society of the Jesuits, in many respects, his, well, his first contribution and his greatest contribution is the spiritual exercises. Just broke it up into two, four weeks. Uh, and those four weeks are really uh, a compilation of, of his reflection. So we know the story, he was struck by a cannonball, which, by the way, this is the 500th anniversary of him being struck by a cannonball. So here's a very quick story, quick, quick summation. Knight, very, very vain, uh, very, very focused upon knight heritry and war, gets struck by a cannonball in Pamplona, Spain, and is literally on the flat of his back for months. Uh, but a gallant uh, soldier, so well thought of that actually in the, in the battle with the Bass, uh, Spaniards and the French, they're so impressed that the French actually carry him back on a stretcher to his home. And there he's trying to figure out, so what's next? And he wants to go back into being a, a knight, being very focused upon uh, what he believed was building his resume, if you will, as a soldier. But the things that gave him joy and focus in the past were no longer satisfying him. And so he asked for other things to be brought to him. More specifically, uh, this lives of the saints, this life of Christ. And it disturbed him. There was something missing in his life. And he was on this journey, this search. And so he travels to this monastery, uh, Montserrat, in Spain. And lays down his sword there before uh, this depiction of Mary, and then walks across the, the bridge to the little town over the Cardinal River and spends the next 10 months living as a beggar, living in a cave. And the whole summation of that came out in this thing known as the spiritual exercises. So, hit with a cannonball 1521, but it wasn't until 1540 that he ultimately gets settled, if you will, this society of Jesus. So a lot takes place during that time. But at the very outset, he writes this thing known as the spiritual exercises, which really speaks about this, this journey. And for many, it's a 30-day retreat. And the last part of it is this, this contemplation to attain love. So first week, looking at who I am as a redeemed sinner. Second week, in terms of my collaboration, my cooperation with, with, with God, third week looking at uh, the, the suffering, uh, the passion, the death of Christ, and then lastly the resurrection, but then into this contemplation to attain love where he says that love ought to show itself in deeds rather than words. That's his takeaway, that it should all be about what we do, and what we do should be rooted in love. So where am I coming from? Why do I do the things I do? For him, it's a matter of, am I coming from a place of love? But what does it mean to come from a place of love? It doesn't mean that I'm coming from a place where I like everyone, because I'm not going to like everyone. In fact, sometimes I'm going to downright dislike people. But I'm still called to love them. What does it mean to love them? True love is not love just a sentiment on a card, but true love consists in that interior, you truly will the good of another. You will the good for another. Even though they may have harmed you, they may have hurt you, they may be difficult to go around, to be around. He says, consists, love ought to show itself in deeds rather than words. So when I think of, of, of who we are, who I am, in my role as that president of the university, and even the university, should be showing itself. It's love in, in deeds rather than words. So what are the ways that we do that? I think in, in lots of ways, clearly, in trying to build a community, in trying to accompany one another, to walk with one another, but most especially to walk with those who are marginalized, those who are forgotten. And not to do it in a, in a boastful way, but to truly make sure that we are showing it in deeds rather than words. What does that mean? Well, those who are marginalized because of, of, of gender identity, because of race, because of language, 
uh, because of immigrant status, uh, because of what, who they are, who we think they are. We don't want to see them and we uh, kind of put them aside. The way that we certainly make sure they stay aside is that we make sure that they're never able to climb out, if you will, so that they're financially at a disadvantage. And then maybe if we can't financially disadvantage, further disadvantage them by putting them in warehouse, incarcerate. So I share that to say that the university is involved in a very, very modest way, but trying to show itself in how is it that we're addressing that, that financial challenge. There's something here known as the Center for Financial Prosperity. It's right there on, on Truce. What's that all about? I've walked by that. So that's folks who have been marginalized in terms of the difficulties of financial bankruptcies, uh, bad budget, living beyond their means, victims of payday loans. And we had lots of families that came and spent months working with trying to be made whole. One way that, that folks in our society are, are marginalized. Another way is that they're in, incarcerated. When we don't want to deal with someone, are we find it, so we warehouse them. So we started a little effort where we have our companions in Chillicothe, where we're providing college education courses for women who are incarcerated in one of the 21 correctional facilities in Missouri. Two of them are for women. And so we have a whole group of professors here who have taught classes. And those women now have been, the idea started probably about 2013, 2014, it took us three or four years to get through that. And now, those women are now in their 12th college groups. They are black students. Some will never leave that person. Some have and some never will. But it is a small way of saying that we will the good of another. So where are we coming from? Ignatius says it always should be. The Gospel says. Where does one live? Where does one dwell? Where am I coming from? If I'm coming from a place of love where I truly wish the good of another, it will manifest itself in deeds. College is a great time. It's great for me to be the, uh, with you. you know, it's kind of a, when I went to college, as I say, as many of you, with, when I was in college, dinosaurs run, run the earth. <laughs> But college for me, college for you, and many of us, it's what? It's about building that resume. Resume is important because I want that job. I want that good job. And I want to be prosperous. And I want to do well. And I want to take care of my, my, my family, my, my significant other. And that's important. And so we do need to be about focusing on the resume. How's this going to look on my resume? And that's a significant part of college. But after college, and even during college, we need to be moving from creating a resume to creating a legacy. What do I mean by the difference in that? Well, the resume with what's on paper, what I've accomplished. It's about every day I like to look at the New York Times. And if I look at nothing else in the New York Times other than the editorials, there's the obituaries. That's pretty morbid. But here's why. There's a whole department of the New York Times that that is their whole job to create these stories about people who have just done remarkable things. And it's great to read them because you're reading that these people like, wow, I never knew this. Here's the person who created the, the microwave oven. Here's the person who's the backup singer for the Rolling Stones. And you're reading about their just extraordinary accomplishments. And it reminds me of how, yes, that's important to all of us, right? To create the resume. But the bigger question is the legacy. Who's left behind? Who's left behind and who's been left behind and, and felt the, 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 the love of that person? That's why I think it's captured in, in Maya Angelou's commentary, right? You've heard that. Now, people may not remember what you said. And they may not remember even what you did, but they will remember how you made them feel. That's what it's like to see. What will they say about this? 
First guest will talk about, oh, she did this, she did this, he did this, and they're great things, and we can sell them. But then the question needs to be, and the conversation needs to be focused upon, but how do they make people feel? How are you making people feel? I'm very, very excited about what you're doing already and what you will be doing, but ultimately, it's moving from the resume to the legacy. And the legacy is captured, I believe, in my Angela's words. Not what I said, not even what I did, but what I said and what I did and how that is impacted on the way people feel. That's the lasting memory that we have of something. We all want to have folks around us. We all want to have, if you will, followers. So how do I get followers? How do I get more people to, to, to come to Rockers? How do I get more people in my club, my organization, my church? There's two ways of doing that. One is by increasing your market share, if you will, by getting more members. And you do that by, well, these are the rules. This is what you need in order to get membership in this group. That's one way to start with, hey, I want you to join this, and this is what you have to do. This is what you have to pay. This is what you have to do. And I don't think that's one way. I think the better way is to first start by a company and not the rules. I'm not saying the rules and the expectations are not important, but let's not start with the rules. Let's start with first walking. I'm going to take an example of Jesus. He said, what? I didn't come to him to fulfill the law. But he didn't start talking about the law. He first walked with people. At one point, he walked seven miles out of his way. Just a company. I think that's a message even for our church, our churches. We looked and said, well, we, you know, they should be members, they should be members. They should be receiving the sacraments. They shouldn't be receiving the sacraments. I hear those conversations, but they're conversations about the rules. And that's part of the conversation. But I think it's better to start first with a company and then follow with the rules. And what does it mean by a company? To be present to people. And we say that we're what? We're about men and women for and with others. I'm of the opinion that the four should be lowercase and the width should be all taxed, full fixed, with others. So we accompany one another. That's truly what it means to be a part of this whole venture of, of Jesuit education. The way to accompany men and women for and with others. Those who have gone on, on, on service trips, service immersions, what we say, well, we're going down to do this. And that's important. But we come back saying, I was with my sisters and my brothers. To me, that's, that's significant in terms of how, how we live and how we increase membership, if you will. Market share is important for, for teams and companies, but, but not for our lives that are rooted in what really matters to us, lives of faith, if you will. It's often said that we should have a, a credo. A credo, what's it mean by a credo? A credo, a word meaning I believe. So what's my credo? When I have to put a credo together in our, many of our classes, especially in our, in our school of management, the MBA program, we have the students as they're going through that, by the end of that program, to develop their credo. And each year I went and speak to them about a credo, and I went and give my credo, which I have there on the screen, which is Four letters, less, which is an acronym. And again, what is that less? The, the L is for love. Uh -huh. Love those you lead. You will the good of another. Well, it seems kind of squishy to love those you lead. When I, when I think of that, I, I, I go back to General Eric Shinseki. General Erickson, second four-star general, very, very successful military leader, was actually made the, the Secretary of Veteran Affairs in the uh, Obama administration. And I remember when he was uh, testifying before the, 
on Senate committee before he would be confirmed as secretary. And when he was asked about his style of leadership, and he said, oh, I must love those of you. But here's a four-star general. He would think that a four-star general would be saying, you got to tough enough. you got to yell, you got to scream, you got to intimidate. And his commentary was that, yeah, I can do that, and I can get people to follow me by doing that. But I find that I'm a much more effective leader if I love those of you. And so the soldiers I lead, I, I, I love. I truly will, not his words, mine, but the definition of love that I've said before, that you will the good of another. You truly wish the good for that person, even though they may have hurt you. Back to Ignatius, right? Love ought to show itself in deeds, rather than words. So it starts with love. The second is, is for me, as, a, as a, my credo as a leader, is that notion of empowerment. Empowerment and encouragement. What do I mean by that? I'm of the opinion you can never say thank you enough or too often. How do you do that? You stop to visit with people. You write notes. I'm a big writer of notes. You probably write 25, 30 notes a week. And I mean notes. Yes, I'll send emails, but I like to put pen to paper. It's great to get a little note. To thank someone for their work here at the university. To congratulate them on an anniversary. To wish them well as they've been struggling with the help of a family member, or maybe just very a family member. That empowerment, encouragement. We all need that. I think it's so important. We like to be noticed. We like to know that someone saw us. We like to know that, that they really care for us. I think that's important as a leader, to empower and to encourage. And you can never tire of it. Because the, the impact of that is so significant. The, the other is, though, that there's times when you're called to be leader that you need to uh, correct, if you will, to adjust, deliver a tough message, share messages that, you know, it's, it's, it's not easy. You say, Paul Kerner, you seem like a nice guy. I hope I am. But also in my position, I've had to share some messages that were not pleasant. And you will as well if you've not already had to do that. So where are you coming from? If someone's done something, they really messed up, you can start and say, well, you really screwed up and I'm going to come after you for that. That's one one. But another way, if I'm truly coming from love, and truly is I wish the good of another, we need to make a correction here. But how do we do it? Yes, there is suaviter said fortiter. Firm but gentle. Deliver the message. Address the issue. But do it in a, in a firm but gentle way. Don't walk away from it. It needs to be delivered, let's be honest. But don't do it in, I mean, I'm really going to go after them because they really hurt me and they really messed up our venture here. And the last letter of that is the S, which is the selfless. So it's less. It's love, it's empowerment, it's suaviter, said fortiter, and it's being selfless. It's not about you. Well, it's true we all bring our personalities. Remember when I came here to Rockhurst and I was interviewed by loads of groups, and then ultimately by the board of trustees who hired me, and they said, so what's the legacy going to be like? Father Curran is president. And I said, I hope it's going to be that it was never about Father Curran. I mean it. Not that I don't have an ego, not that I'm not interested in us being successful. But it's not about me. It's about us accompanying one another. That, to me, is what it means to be selfless. It doesn't mean you're a doormat. It doesn't mean you don't have feelings. It doesn't mean you don't care about people. But it does mean that it's not about how does this work out for me. So loving those we empowering those we correcting those we and being selfless. Now, of course, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a Jesuit priest, and uh, yeah, I've got to believe in these things, right? 
Now I gotta be about churchy things. And I gotta celebrate mass and do all those things. So yeah, then you gotta do that stuff. But what about that? You know, things have changed dramatically. So I have there when someone says, oh, well, I'm not really religious, I'm spiritual. What's that? So religious means that I have an affiliation with a particular religion. You know, I'm, I'm a Baptist, I'm a Presbyterian, I'm a Catholic, I'm a Buddhist, I'm a Jew. Well, our, our country started to track that, as other countries did, probably in the 60s, in terms of you would check what was your religious affiliation. In the early 1960s, they started to check that in all of the categories you could list, or okay, Presbyterian, Buddhist, Jew, whatever. And then the last category that you could check was none of the above. Hence, we got this classification called the nuns. <laughs> Not nuns, any N-U-N, but the nuns as an N-O-N-E-S. And at that time, it was probably about 3 or 4% of the population. Today, it's 25%. And a third of those are millennials and younger. Say, I'm spiritual. Hey, I like this about the Quakers. I like this about the Buddhists. I like this about the Catholics. I like this about the Jews and the kind of young. But I'm not churchgoer. I'm spiritual. I'm none of the above. So I, I offer a reflection for you from someone by the name of, of, of Greg Epstein. Now, who's he? So our, our college, our university is Jesuit Catholic, right? And the history of higher education here in the United States has been that just about every institution, all the way back to Harvard, started with a religious dimension. It was very, very important. Harvard, Stanford, all and then, of course, that, that changed with state institutions and then private institutions. So, Greg Epstein is important because Harvard today is not a religious institution. However, they have a very, very big um, chaplains program. In fact, they have 25 chaplains there. So, they have a Buddhist, they have a Zoroaster, they have a, a Jewish, they have a Catholic, right? And as a group of chaplains, they elect who's going to be the head chaplain. And Greg Epstein was elected this past year to serve for a couple of years, and he's been there for quite a while. He's a humanist. It's a humanist. So humanist, agnostics, and atheists. He's a cultural Jew, but he does not believe in God, and yet he's the head of all the chaplains in Harvard. And he's unanimously selected by his peers. And so he wrote this book called Good Without God. And this question, can it be good without that? A very, very thoughtful critique of this whole issue. Can we be good without God? And he says that we really need to reframe the question. It's not, he says, what, is it possibly good without God? He says, we always ask people, well, do you believe or don't you believe? So that we need to reframe the question. So just what is it you believe? Not do you believe or don't believe, but what is it you believe? And he comes to this pretty compelling argument that, you know, perhaps some can be good with God, and some can be good without God. But we all need to be good together. Where we have to believe in one another. And especially when we're using religion, as a weapon against one another. Well, you're no good because you're no, you don't want to believe. And we use this religion to separate us. That's not how any religion is. Can you be good without God? Or can you only be good with God? Or is it possible? And is it necessary that we need to be good together, whether one believes or doesn't believe? So as we're seeing more and more of a sociological movement from religious to spiritual to none of the above, I'm keenly aware here at our university in terms of, yeah, I think I believe, or I believe a little of this, or I'm not sure I believe, and struggling with that, or wrestling with that, 
And I say that continue to wrestle. Continue to ask yourself that question. Not do I believe or not believe, but what is it I believe? About what? What does that mean? Do I believe in a transcendent? Is that a, a Trinitarian God? And go deep in that. You've heard me say that I want you to feel safe on this campus. Do everything to make sure you're safe. That's very important. That each and every person always feels safe on this campus. But I don't want you comfortable. There's a difference. Discomfort is part of our lifelong learning. We need to wrestle with that. It's not quick, pat answers for this. What does it mean to be good? You've had that question, you've wrestled with it in your philosophy classes. What does it mean to be virtuous? Well, can you only be good if you're connected with the transcendent? Can you be good without? But together. College is important, it's significant. You hear about, well, we're all about what critical thinking. Really analyze. So we talk about a Jesuit education. It's not teaching you what to think, but how to think. And that's true, and that's probably a working definition of critical thinking. But, but a little bit of caution here. Critical thinking is learning to think for yourself. But here's the Jesuit spin on it. It's not thinking just of yourself. We don't live in isolation. We are in this together. Yes, we need to think critically, but we never stop thinking of one another. So education is, yes, it's forming the mind, but not forming the mind just for the sake of building one's resume, generating greater shareholder wealth. It's really forming this community, which is why I love our, our coming from the Hebrew scriptures, the ninth chapter, verse 1. Wisdom has built herself a house. Her. Wisdom is personified in the scriptures, in the feminine, always. Now, women here would say, well, wisdom, feminine, of course, that makes sense. No. <laughs> But wisdom has built herself a house. What does that mean? The foundation. The foundation for what? The foundation for how I ought to live. Which is really the essence of prudential judgment. So I have some words up there. What? About, we talk about big data. Big data being managed into, to, to what? Information. And then we managing that even further so that it's knowledge. But then there's another step, which is wisdom. It's quite different. Wisdom is prudential judgment. How I ought to live. How we ought to live. So it's not just knowledge, data, information. Again, it's part of, I think, the summation of this notion of critical thinking. Not to be the smartest person in the room but to be the most informed in terms of how I live my life. That's the foundation. That's the house you're building in this time. A way of proceeding. That's a language in Jesuit world. A way of proceeding. How does one roll, if you will? How should I roll? You hear this, this notion of, right? I, I love this expression. Prompted by the gentle disposition of God's providence, we are invited to be co-laborers in creation. Prompted by the gentle disposition of God's providence. What does that mean? It means that God invites us to be co-laborers, co-creators. Last week, uh, we sat the uh, exhibit, the, the Auschwitz uh, exhibit in Union Station. And of course, we know that Auschwitz and many of the concentration camps, there's this emblazoned peace that are by my fraud. Right? Work, makes, work makes free. 
To me, that's the ultimate blasphemy. Because what that's saying is, is that by my work, by my work, on my own, I create this world, and that makes me free. But the psalmist says it differently. If the Lord does not build the house, then in vain do the laborers work. So we're co-laborers. It's the gentle disposition of God inviting us to say, work with me. Work with me. To continue to recreate this world. Some often say, oh, I hear you often say, to make a good world better. Let's see the world as evil. Let's see, yes, there's problems. But it's quite capable of being made better. And we're asked to take, to embrace that gentle disposition of God's providence and say, I'm going to climb with I'm going to work. So all of us are, are co workers or co laborers, if you will, to make a world that is good, infinitely better. Not on our own, but with God. When we say this work makes free, I think it's really a form of blasphemy saying, we got this covered. Contemplative is an action, one of our core values. I've been summed up in, in, in one of the lines of, of, a, of, a, of a poem from the four quartets of T.S. Eliot. We had the experience, but missed the meaning. We had the experience, but missed the meaning. Otherwise, so I, I share this with you as I share it to myself. When we're so anxious to get through something, when we're so anxious to go get through it and get on to the next thing, we're depriving ourselves of the experience and the meaning. Don't rush through the experience. Even the experiences that are painful, some that are pleasant and we enjoy, but let's not be rushing to the next one. And the ones that are painful, that are just, just disruptive, to have the experience, but to have missed the meaning. Can't just say, oh, that was so long ago, I forgot about it, I couldn't wait to get through it. It's there for a purpose. It's to instruct us. Even the things that I just don't like at this point, the things that I find disturbing, the thing I think that's alienating me. What's this all about? How is this instructing me? What's this saying to, to sit with to think about the journal of life. Be good to yourself. Be good to yourself. These words you've heard frequently, right? In the unlikely event of a sudden loss of cabin pressure, oxygen masks will drop down from the power above your head. Secure your own mask before helping others. You've heard those words, right? I love those words. I love those words. Because they seem so counterintuitive. Right? Oh gosh, no, no, I'm, I'm traveling with someone in my family who's elder, who's sick. I'm traveling with a little child. And now I'm going to help them. So, you know, put your mask on first. And then assist. Every time I fly, it reminds me of we need sufficient oxygen. We can't help others if you don't have sufficient oxygen. When I first had a Latin many, many years ago, and struggling through Latin, but I found this expression that I loved, it's nemo dot quidon habo, which is translated base rate, you can't give what you don't have. So I had the first test and I, I just didn't, I had not studied. So I thought it was pretty clever for me to put that as for every one of my answers. One cannot give what one does not have. <laughs> the point here is, you need sufficient oxygen. I'm not talking about being selfish, I'm talking about sufficient oxygen. So if you, hey, next time you fly, or last time you fly, or never fly, and hear those words, just pause for a minute. And ask yourself, am I getting sufficient oxygen so that I truly can help others? Because if we don't, if there's an insufficiency, I'll tell you what happens is you start to resent others because I'm doing so much. And people don't realize how good I'm being, how generous I'm being. What's going on here? What's going on there is that I'm not getting sufficient oxygen. 
I'm not being sufficiently good to myself. So that I resent that I'm having to have problems. But I have sufficient oxygen that I can be driven and assist those with whom I'm trapped and accompany. So I have to be take care of myself. Isn't it great that we are in the Division II athletic program, which what? Life in the balance. Good nutrition, good exercise, good friends. All of it. So that I live a, a balanced life. That's all part of that, but not afford sufficient oxygen. Am I living a life in the balance? So that I truly am taking sufficient oxygen so that I can assist the other travelers in my life. And lastly, I'm going to end it up with where I started. And, it, and it's a line from a song uh, titled Nature Boy. Now, the, the story behind Nature Boy is pretty cool, in my estimation. So this guy, Ian uh, Adams, is probably one of the first hippies. Uh, lived in California, Jewish fellow. And, and he literally lived, uh, actually made of this sign, the Hollywood sign. Right? He lived under one of the letters. In the, in the 40s. And, and he literally was just this kind of back-to-nature person. And then he wrote this, this song about himself as nature boy, trying to, you know, wandering, what's going on. And he delivers this, this lyrics to this singer, Matt King Cole. And they liked it, but they, they, they were trying to find him. He's literally living out nowhere. They recorded the song, and since that time, there has been over 50 performers that have performed the song. And the, the great line is, and he speaks about it, you know, the interviews with him, you know, that uh, you know, the greatest thing you'll ever learn is to love and to be loved in return. To allow yourself to be loved. And then to love in return. So it's all about, for me, exploration, the journey. And again, back to a, to a poet here, T.S. T.S. right? Four quartet, so this is the fourth quartet, little game, right? We shall not cease from exploration. And at the end of our exploration, we shall come back to where we started and discover it for the first time. And discover it for the first time. May you have great explorations, discovery, that you allow yourself to be loved, love in return. And maybe I'll, we'll uh, just listen to a little bit of this and maybe playing a little softly here. So all of the people that have, have uh, recorded this, the most recent is Lady Gaga. <laughs> a great story about Lady Gaga. So Lady Gaga performed this with Tony Bennett. And Tony Bennett, who's turning 90, turned 95 years old, has Alzheimer's. They have developed this incredible relationship. And he can't remember, sadly, can't remember what he had for breakfast. But he remembers her, and when he sings, it all comes back to him. And so they just had this concert uh, in Radio City to celebrate his 95th. Uh, she's just, she didn't come out dressed in a, in a dress full of what red meat this time, but, <laughs> but, but here is the, the duet for them. Well, maybe just listen to this. Uh, you can Google and find other versions of this and then open it up for your takeaways and questions. So, go ahead.
magic day, he passed my way. While we spoke of many things, fools and kings, this he said to me.
there's a, a, a part of me, uh, after I made the announcement, to be perfectly honest, that wanted to pack and kind of move out that night. Uh, so folks, uh, students, faculty, staff, alums, stopping to, to share with me uh, impact. Uh, just great appreciation. And it's a, it's a <laughs> so I, I think that the, the takeaway is to just uh, allow it, right? just, to just listen to that. Right? Um, yeah. So, uh, and, you know, and just, and, and preparing also, and it's going to be difficult for me to leave, very difficult. There's a part of me that would very much like to stay. The last couple of years have been in conversation with my provincial. He's asked about other needs of the, of, the, of the church and the society. And we need to make ourselves available. And I said yes. And it's been delayed a couple times. And so she was saying, yeah, it's, it's time. It's time. So after 16 years, I just uh, it's, uh, need to move on. So I'll take a little sabbatical. I will leave Kansas City. I'll leave Rockhurst. I think it's appropriate that I not be here. So it's now not influence or anyway impact the next president, she or he. Uh, I'll do a little sabbatical, I'll retool, and then I'll be reassigned. And I'll, and I'll share that uh, provincial and I will share that probably in the, the early part of 2022, when all that's all worked out. But I'm going to miss it. Great to miss it. So it seems like you've kind of spent a lot of your life in <coughs> dedicating it to the service of others. How is that something you knew you would be called to do? So then, how was the last part of it? How did? How did you know you would be like called to the service of others? Like, how is that what you knew you wanted to spend your life doing? So I, I think I've evolved in my understanding of thinking that you're called to serve, being for as opposed to, I think I've grown more to being with. A compliment to me is, uh, that's so attractive to just walk with. So, uh, this, for instance, last week, to be able to accompany 10 of our students down to Alabama, to go to Selma, to Montgomery, to Birmingham, to the civil rights uh, sacred places, uh, and just to be in that company, uh, just, that, that to me is uh, the evolution in terms of my vocation. Uh, that, it's, that, it's, that we accompany one another, we walk with one another. Uh, that is the question. So you mentioned, like, throughout, um, mentioned throughout like how you truly loving a person is loving the people that you dislike as well and just wanting the good for them and I just thought that was really this is a really question I just thought that was a really good statement because I think that you that everyone should just want the good for everyone and I liked how you connected that just because Wanting the good for someone doesn't mean you have to believe in a certain thing. It just means you have to believe in people. So thank you. Well said. Yeah, so, yeah. We want yeah, we really have a true benevolence and truth that we really want what's good for that person. They totally disagree. Um, what is your favorite memory of rockers? <laughs> favorite memory of, of rockers. Wow. Uh, I need to think about that because there's so many, right? That's that's a question you're leaving me with. So I think I need to yeah, think about that. Right? Uh, I, I think some of the most um, some of the most powerful memories and some of the most significant memories have been some of the most painful. Some incredible uh, things have been very uplifting, 
but I think the, the ones that sear in my soul are, are also ones where I've been with uh, students, alums, uh, literally at the time of the death. And as difficult as that was, uh, it was a gift. It was the ultimate accompaniment of you. Dr. Quick's here. Dr. Quick is not a Speak up. You're very, very uh, Oh, I'll share it with my name. This is the, uh, it's probably, what, 12 years ago, right? 12, 13 years ago. Uh, a grad who was just, I mean, stellar. Just, you know, incredibly bright, very, very gifted. Started the job, uh, started graduate program, and just uh, a few weeks after graduation, uh, moving from this side of campus, a couple blocks, and taking a truck literally from the street, uh, forest down to Troost, uh, moving furniture, stuff shifts, thrown off the back of the truck, and in the middle of Troost there, rushed to the hospital and you know, breaking. Um, so uh, the parents called, I think one from St. Louis, and uh, Called to the hospital, so Matt and I were there that night, and it's, gosh, it's 10, 11 o'clock at night, right? Um, probably by the time the family got there, it was maybe midnight. There must have been 40 students there. Everybody had alerted one another. Uh, Stephen West. Uh, so, you know, mom and dad came in, Wanted immediately to go in to see their son, and so I spent some time, not, not spent some time with the, the West family. Uh, and uh, with the medical personnel, and then we went into the, to the, to the room. Uh, it was on the ventilator, and uh, basically the parents were given the choice now to, you know, okay, say their goodbye. We weren't there but a few moments, and the mother turned to me and prayed, blessed, and anointed him. And turned to me and said, "Okay, I, I want, I want everybody to have a chance to come in and say goodbye." So for the next two hours, we brought in groups, maybe three or four, and everybody got their chance. It was one of the most difficult nights. I mean, it was four in the morning, I guess, when we finished. Um, and then the family removed him from life support, and then shortly after that, he expired. The families remain very, very close to the university and become good friends. Uh, and as tragic as it was, and this is God mentions it was, uh, we think, gosh, why doesn't he show something up later? Because um, it's all about comfort. And good moments as well as uh, just this incredible gift. So that's that one. It just, it, it, you know, you know, probably not the way you want to spend, finish the evening, but I do think it's what we're called to do, right, to be with. So for the next couple of days, just so well loved and uh, so much celebrated by his classmates, and scholarship event, and uh, yeah, last, last year we were able to, uh, the family just sort of deep So all that to say, and there's loads of moments, you know, that are just incredible. I mean, I, I think probably the flip side of the happiest moments that, that, uh, is having lunch. <laughs> that's just the best. That, that's the funnier side. And we just talk about everything, right? You know? And, you know. So it's the, it's the gap, everything in between. And, it, and it's thank you for allowing me to be a part of your lives. Thank you for allowing me to accompany you uh, for this gift, and we will continue to, to work together this year. Uh, I'm not going anywhere till, till, till June. Uh, we are moving towards one more project here, which is the establishment of a Center for Faith and Justice, which is what I truly believe we should be about, with a new chapel in that, and so we're raising money for that, and to have that here, so that all of those things that we do in terms of service learning, Companions in Chillicothe and uh, 
uh, campus ministry, admission line, all that in terms of I think it does justice. One last thought, or then. Oh my gosh, it's way past over a bit. <laughs> my crib is calling. I know that you mentioned that when you were interviewing the board, that you wanted, you said you didn't want it to be about you. And while you've done great things, I think this, uh, this era of rockers, where you were there, will definitely be cemented about you. I wish you a good evening if you have homework to do. Uh, sorry to keep you from it, but may I just say a prayer that it comes to you be inspired this night, get some rest, and we'll, we'll be back, back at it tomorrow. Right? So earlier tonight, I was, uh, yeah, writing some poetry. And uh, the poetry was about uh, chickens, of all things. So I decided to title it Poultry in Motion. True story.